Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the struggle of immigrant workers in New York City. Also going to be talking about a recent coup uh, happening inside the West African country of Burkina Faso. And going to be discussing uh, a weekend of solidarity protests in support of Julian Assange. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Amir Kafaji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kafaji91. Amir, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Amir. And you recently published a piece on uh, DocumentedNY.com about the struggle of different immigrant workers happening inside New York City. Uh, I believe in uh, perhaps a couple of different places, a couple of different industries. And uh, these workers are dealing with issues of exploitation, uh, dangerous conditions, uh, having their complaints uh, being ignored and sometimes uh, being retaliated against. And I can't help but feel, Amir, that this treatment of the workers is directly tied to their status as immigrants. But help us understand uh, just what's uh, happening here and how this struggle has been unfolding. Well, what you have in New York is something called um, brokers. I'm not sure you have them in Washington, D.C., but I know they have them in other states. And these labor brokers operate in a, in a weird gray area in New York. Um, Oftentimes, you have uh, contracts at construction sites. They don't necessarily want to directly have to hire uh, workers because they don't want to, have to deal with work compensation. They don't want to have to deal with any sort of liability that comes with hiring employees. So what they do is they often hire labor brokers who then, in turn, go ahead and hire the workers to work these sites. And these labor brokers often prey upon vulnerable uh demographics, such as they often prey upon workers who are, who are on parole. Um, they also prey upon immigrants. Um, the reason they do that is because these workers are vulnerable. They can't say no to the work. If you're on parole, if, if you're no longer um, employed, you, you, you risk going back to jail. And if you're you really can't turn an, an undocumented immigrant. You really can't turn to anybody if you're being mistreated on the work site um, and you're not getting pay, paid your proper wages. So these companies really, they they profit off the backs of vulnerable populations. Um, in New York last year, there was supposed to be, there was a law that got passed that these labor brokers were supposed to be licensed and registered with the city. And many have already um, gotten their license and have already been registered. But that's super clean the company that I was writing about it, Peace, hasn't registered with the city and hasn't gotten their license yet. And they're currently under investigation by the city um, for, because, uh, for not registering. So it's a company that's shady, um, but unfortunately it's not the only company. There seems to be many companies like that in the city that are profiting off the backs of, of vulnerable workers. Yeah. And uh, what are the conditions like? I mean, what are these workers uh, dealing with uh, in these uh, different places and how how does the sort of role of the labor brokers you're describing factor into that? 
So these labor brokers, they don't provide any safety equipment for for uh for the workers. Just imagine, right? They're not the ones that are doing this, the construction work, right? The labor broker is only in charge of finding bodies to work on these construction sites. That's why we, they call them body shops. Um, so workers are are responsible for bringing their own tools, bringing their own safety equipment, their own gloves, their own harnesses. The the, the body shops and these labor these labor brokers they don't provide any of that. Um, so workers in in the in the story in the story I was writing um, and the work I spoke to were talking about having climb up maybe ten stories high without any safety harness. They would have. In or, they would make their own kind of makeshift harnesses by tying a rope around them, and a guy physically, one, one of their coworkers, just be holding the rope below them, so just in case they fell, they can be, they could be caught. You know, this they're operating like this is in the 1920s and 1930s, not not as if it's the the 2020s. It's it's a crazy situation. Workers have to physically break. With the hands and hammers and slug hammers or anything like that, um, they're, they're they're supposed they pick up tools as they go. They work in pitch black darkness without any flashlights. It's a really crazy and, and dangerous situation that no worker um, should be able, should tolerate. These workers are forced because of their status and situation. Yeah. And Amir, so what has uh, organizing uh, uh, looked like amongst the workers in trying to push back against these conditions you're describing? Well, the situation at Best Super Clean um, is very interesting. These workers, a lot of these workers had organizing experience. They were part of, um, there's a company called B&H Photo Company in New York where it's uh, it does. It rents out camera equipment and all kinds of filming equipment. And a few years ago, B&H workers there were uh, organizing for a union, um, and they successfully won a union. But then, about a year, a year or so later, B&H had closed the warehouse where the workers were organizing and laid off all the workers. Many of those workers, now laid off, found their way into the construction industry and some of them got jobs with best super clean and seeing the conditions that they were forced to work under, they were much more to bargain for than the company even realized because these workers had successfully organized once before. So as soon as they started to feel um, the conditions were unsafe and that their lives weren't being treated uh, or taken seriously, the workers decided to organize. Um, because of the, because of that, the, uh, best super clean fired some of the top org- leader organizers, um, workers at the, at the, at the job site. And they, they launched a campaign to get their not just get their jobs back, but to actually negotiate, um, uh, a settlement with the employer to create a safer work environment to rehire them create safer work environments, give pay raises, and give um, uh, proper breaks and, and, and things of that nature. So it's very interesting how the, the workers themselves had experience organizing and, that, and launched this campaign. I think it's very inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting that you noted in your piece is about how um, a lot of these 
workers are uh, indigenous Guatemalans who, who speak a language called uh, MAM. And they sort of bring that uh, uh, culture into their uh, political organizing, incorporate into the names of their uh, uh, organizations. And so it, it sort of feels that, you know, their their identity and their status is kind of a part of uh, a driving factor, if you will, and uh, how they sort of orient themselves and think about how to uh, uh, carry through in this struggle. And another thing that sort of struck me was, you know, uh, there was one uh, worker you quoted that was discussing and describing the conditions that and they said, quote, at any moment, anybody can die. I mean, it's incredible that uh, workers, you know, in general could be subject to conditions so harsh that they very well could be deadly. And so I'm curious, Amir, I mean, has there been any kind of, uh, you know, outside support uh, uh, for these uh, uh, workers or, or something like that? I mean, it just feels like something uh, uh, of this character just uh, deserves uh, a more robust response, uh, uh, even from, you know, maybe elected officials and things like that than, than we've been seeing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, it's interesting, and this is why I love New York so much, and, you know, I'm a quintessential New Yorker, is that in this city, you can have a, 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 a group of people who speak a language that is on the decline worldwide, right? It's a very rare language. It's, it's a, Mon is a, is a dialect of the Mayan language, and not many people speak it even in Guatemala, right? It's in decline. But here in New York, we have a group of people who speak it as their first language. So I think that it's a beautiful thing. But it also speaks to the fact that how how much of us uh, how much they are as survivors, right? The, the Mon language has survived colonization and conquest and and imperialism and and yet they still speak their language and they still maintain their culture and now they're taking that fighting spirit with them into this campaign and i think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story that attracted me to the story especially um in terms of support i think there could be so much more support for them, right i think there there seems to be a nationwide interest in the labor movement now over the past few years, right? They, everyone talks about the resurgence of the labor movement and there seems to be more news coverage, mainstream news coverage given to, to labor struggles than ever before. And that's a great thing. But oftentimes I feel even that narrative is, is um, still within um, a white narrative, right? Where, like white workers are getting much more attention than workers of color and even worker immigrant workers, right? It's, um, the struggle of the construction workers at Super Clean is not as sexy to the mainstream media as maybe white workers who are organizing in Starbucks, which should get attention as well. But I think there should be more attention. There should be as much attention, if not more, paid to workers of color who are struggling to survive in this city. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm also wondering when we talk about these conditions, I mean, I mean, there's no way that uh, people can sort of be subject uh, to that on a constant basis and, and it not have any impact. So, I mean, uh, you know, specifically, like in terms of like, you know, physically and all these sorts of things. I mean, how have uh, uh, these conditions sort of impacted uh, uh, workers uh, who are, you know, like anyone just trying to make a living? It, many workers not, um, at some of these labor broker uh, job sites have died because of the conditions at these 
at these places. So it's not uncommon to hear many of the construction deaths in New York City over the past few years have been attributed to these uh, body shop, labor broker job sites. Um, workers are constantly getting injured on the job site. They, they have chronic pain. Um, it's really, for some workers I spoke to, it's really humiliating to find out that they're getting paid far less for the same job that union workers are getting paid, right? So there's a level of shame there. Um, I, 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 I'm working on another story with parolee workers who, who are uh, working at these jobs, at these body shops. And they talk about how they, didn't, they thought they were getting, they had a good job until they met union workers at some of these job sites who were doing the exact same work. Um, but getting paid far more than they were. So it also creates like this racial hierarchy within construction sites between uh, black and Latino workers and, and white, many white unionized workers. So it's, and I know Local 79, the Construction Union in New York, has been actively fighting with these body shops because these body shops contribute to an atmosphere that creates a, a race to the bottom, right? If you can pay, why pay a union rate if you can pay? Um, much lower and provide far less um, reliability on the job site for workers. So the, the unions have, have have took an active role in, in fighting these body shops and, and making sure that worker safety is prioritized. But there needs to be a lot more done because I don't, there needs to be far, there is regulation now in place, but there has to be far more uh, inspections taking place to protect these workers. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, this is a broad question, but uh, just looking at all this, it makes me wonder how you see the plight of these workers sort of connected to broader issues uh, facing immigrants in a city like New York, which, of course, is, is massive, densely populated, increasingly becoming uh, too expensive to live and things like this. And uh, I just feel like what we're seeing here may actually be indicative of experiences that a lot of immigrants have in, in trying to find work and also trying to advocate for their rights as workers? A hundred percent. You know, part of what I do is as a labor reporter in New York, working for Documented, which covers the immigrant communities throughout the city, is to try to um, give voice to the experience of immigrant workers and their struggles. Immigrant workers in New York have been organizing since the beginning of the city has been founded, right? For everywhere from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was which was most, the workers that died there were mostly immigrant women workers. Till now, with the workers working at these construction sites, it's, it's, the story of New York has been the story of immigrant workers struggling to survive and carve out um, a space for them in this city. And I think that fight continues. Um, New York is becoming much more expensive, much more unlivable, much more luxurious. But immigrant workers are, are building that city, right? And the construction site, these are, a lot of these construction sites are luxury housing. These workers can never afford to live in these housing, how, uh, in this kind of housing, but they're the ones building it. Um, so, it, and that goes to, from, from construction to retail to every, every to, to home health care. All these industries are immigrant workers are the are the beat of New York, are the the lifeblood of this city. But oftentimes the the city doesn't love them back and doesn't treat them with respect and dignity like they deserve. 
Yeah, and one thing that I for uh, that I meant to ask actually is, you know, what has the response been uh, from these different companies to the protests uh, of these workers? And I mean, is there any indication that uh, there will be any movement on their part to address uh, the concerns of these workers? Well, that's the funny thing, right? They, I, I tried talking to the to the owners of the company. Um, I've got they hung up the phone on me. It seems like they were open to negotiating at one point, but then this changed their mind and are refusing to negotiate with the workers. So it really, between you and I, Sean and the listeners, it seems like they don't treat, they don't see these workers as human beings. They see them as just tools um, and to be disposed of. And that's the hardest part about working on this story because you really get this feeling that they don't care about them and they don't see them as human beings. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Amir, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recent coup d'etat in Burkina Faso. And we're happy to be joined for the conversation today by Dr. Nyaka Lagoke, Assistant Professor of History and Pan-Africana Studies at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania and a founding member of the Convention for Pan-Africanism and Progress. Dr. Lagoke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And of course, we appreciate having you on, Doctor. And here recently, uh, we have seen a coup d'etat in the West African country of Burkina Faso, which has seen one Captain Ibrahim Traore, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, being appointed as president of Burkina Faso following the ouster of former leader Paul Henri Demiba. And as it happens, this is the second coup in Burkina Faso. So in less than nine months. So, Wanyaka, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, what motivated this uh, coup in Burkina Faso and what do you think it'll mean for the country? Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, uh, we just have to remember that in, in January uh, 2022, uh, uh, Damiba, uh, an officer of the Burkina Bay Army, uh, overthrew uh, the civilian government, which was led by Orok Kabore. Uh, the main reason uh, for uh, Damiba, he said that uh, you know there was a insecurity in the country as the terrorists and the jihadists were attacking and occupying the regions of Burkina Faso, and he said that the president was not capable of resolving the issue. And therefore, the president deserved to be taken out of power. And then, so the promise was that he was going to work, you know, to restore peace and security, and then to combat and fight against terrorism. And but in the in the eight or nine months of his uh, uh, of his of his uh, uh, tenure as the president, 
we saw that he was walking away from his own promise, and then he wanted to focus on what he calls uh, reconciliation in Burkina Faso, and he wanted to bring back uh, the former president into the conversation. The former president, I mean, Blaise Compaoré, uh, who uh, was condemned in absentia by a tribunal in Burkina Faso for the killing of Thomas Sankara. And Blaise Compaoré right now is in exile in, in, in Ivory Coast. So many people who support uh, Sankara, who want justice for Sankara, uh, did not welcome his approach. And then the Damipa's approach brought more tension, more division in the country. And then it looks like he was not listening to people. Meanwhile, the terrorists and the jihadists, they were killing more people and they were killing in the occupying regions. And this brought uh, more, ten- more tension in the midst of the military junta. And then this is how Ibrahim Traore and, and some other ones decided in order to take him out of power. So this is how uh, Damiba was taken out of power. And then uh, Ibrahim Traore became the new strongman of Burkina Faso. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down, uh, Dr. Legoke. And you touched on this uh, uh, a little bit, but obviously, if a country has two coups, uh, basically in less than a year, then that, uh, I think, more than indicates uh, some fundamental instability there. I mean, uh, what are the conditions in Burkina Faso that has uh, created this kind of environment? Um, one thing that I, I, I did not stress too much I when I was giving my uh, first answer is that uh, since the revolution of 2014 in Burkina Faso that took out of power Blaise Compaoré, uh, the one who was in power for 27 years after uh, taking out of power Thomas Sankara after killing Thomas Sankara, since that time, uh, we saw that there is, uh, in the context of the revival of Pan-Africanism, uh, in, in Africa, in the world, here in the United States, we have uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that became globalized. And we saw people in the United States, in different parts of the world, going, taking down the symbols of white supremacy, of the confederacy, of slavery and colonialism. So in Africa, we see like there is a people's power movement that started in Senegal in 2012. Uh, we have that mobilization of Africans against the International Criminal Court that, uh, that you know, when uh, where Babo, the former prince of Ivory Coast, was, uh, uh, was, and then he was in prison there for 10 good years. So in Burkina Faso, uh, when they took out of power Blaise, and then they claimed the Thomas Ankara's value, and then we saw that uh, the Pan-African consciousness became stronger and stronger, and it started touching different parts of West Africa in Mali, in Guinea, in different other parts of the continent. In that environment, if a leader comes to power in Burkina Faso, and then you do not want you know, to understand that new reality, and you want to try and bring back the old order, or you want to side with the French, because there is an anti-French movement in Africa, particularly in those Francophone countries, and Damipa, I did not understand that. And even when people were supporting the uh, Ibrahim Traoré 
uh, during the, the, the talk of war between uh, Ibrahim Traore and then Damiba. We saw people going after uh, some French, uh, like the French consulate and the French institute in Ouagadougou, and they tried to, you know, they even put some fire on those, on those buildings because there were rumors that the French were protecting Damiba. And then some people were in the street with the flags of the of Russia because they do not want uh, to have some exclusive relationship with France. The many African countries want to have the, the right to diversify you know, their partners. This is the environment. Yes, we have the issue of terrorism, and then it is, it's, like, it's not like a one leader who is going to be able to resolve the issue, but beside the issue of terrorism, of jihadism in, in West Africa, we have that new reality, but that strong, powerful, a powerful Pan-African consciousness. And whoever wants to go against it certainly is going to have uh, the, is going to cause the revolt of, of the masses. So this is what happened in Burkina Faso. Yeah, and what you're touching on, Dr. Lagoke, is precisely what I wanted to ask about next. And that is this um, uh, geopolitical international connection with the situation inside Burkina Faso. Because as you note, following this most recent coup, there were these protests against France. And uh, protesters were using slogans like uh, no to ECOWAS interference, uh, France get out, uh, long live Russian Burkina cooperation. Uh, uh, what what I mean, I think in terms of the anti-France slogan, that's uh, uh, I, I think that sort of explains itself. But uh, why the uh, mention of the bodies of ECOWAS and the relationship between Burkina Faso and, and Russia? Why is this um, why are these relevant issues amongst the people of Burkina Faso that uh, would compel them to uh, go into the streets in this way following the coup? Yeah, because uh, ECOWAS is one of the uh, one of the most important regional economic communities in Africa, uh, and then it uh, you have the English-speaking countries, the, the French-speaking countries, and countries that speak Spanish or Portuguese in West Africa. So, and then you know when there is a crisis, ECOWAS uh, is uh, called upon to try and bring peace and, and reconciliation in those countries in, in, that, in that time of, of tension. But one thing that people have observed recently is that ECOWAS is uh, most of the leaders are manipulated, you know, by French. Uh, at least, you know, you know that we have those uh, eight, uh, eight Francophone countries uh, which are a part of ECOWAS, the Ivory Coast, uh, Burkina Faso, and Mali, and the Niger, and many other countries. And then those countries are members of the, the CFA French zone uh, controlled by France. And then France is, is using uh, that, that leverage in order to extend its influence, be in Africa or on the international scene. And then when there is a leader who uh, is... Uh, uh, defying the, the French authority, uh, France uh, France uh, uses its, you know, some of its puppets in order to mobilize the economic community against the leader who is supposedly defying France. It happened with Babo Laurent, and it happened, or it is happening uh, with the current military regime led by Asini Goita. 
and then there were some economic sanctions and the money, you know, the, the foreign reserves of Mali that are deposited in the West African Central Bank. Because of the sanctions for the last two years, Mali cannot have access to its own money. So this is what France is doing using all those leaders. So this infuriated uh, Pan-Africanist and nationalist. And this is how with the Malian revolution, uh, we saw, uh, the con- we heard the concept, we want ECOWAS of the people, not ECOWAS of the elite uh, that is being manipulated you know, by France, or the ECOWAS of the elite trying to serve the interests of foreign entities. And so the people in Burkina Faso, in Senegal, in different other parts of Africa, West Africa, are siding with the struggle of the people in Mali. Uh, they, they embraced the concept of ECOWAS of the people. And then when we heard that ECOWAS delegation was going to Burkina Faso, uh, then you can understand now, in light of what I just said, uh, people took to the street and they said, you know what, they do not want to see ECOWAS delegation there because uh, they don't trust them anymore. And then they don't think that those people have what the moral capacity and then the you know the moral rectitude for them you know to bring peace and reconciliation in Burkina Faso. Definitely. And just for folks uh, who may not know, when we mention ECOWAS, we're talking about the economic community of West African states. And um, also sort of wrapped in your uh, uh, comments there, Dr. Lagoke. I mean, it makes me think about the fact about how in recent years, it feels like we've been seeing coups happening um, all, you know, throughout uh, uh, the African continent. I mean, uh, we've seen in recent years coups and coup attempts in countries, you know, obviously Burkina Faso. So Guinea, Chad, Mali, like you mentioned, Sudan. I mean, it's hard to feel like uh, it's hard not to feel like this isn't a coincidence. You know what I mean? It feels like there must be a a common thread that is um, stoking this this turmoil and all these uh, uh, serious shifts in these different African countries. And so to what do you attribute this uh, uh, slew of coups that we've been seeing on the African continent, Dr. Lagoke, and uh, do you think that they are, there's some uh, issue or some topic or some element that sort of ties them all together? Yeah, there's a common thread, uh, but, you know, we have to uh, we, we have to differentiate a little bit what happened in Chad mm-hmm. uh, with what is happening in West Africa. Uh, because in the case of Chad, uh, the president, uh, who has been serving the interests of the French, uh, was killed, and then uh, he was replaced within some obscure conditions. Uh, we don't know if the French did it. We don't know who did it, but people say that uh, some rebel groups did that. And then now he was replaced by his son, who is right now leading the transition, uh, the transitional government in Chad. But in, in the case of West Africa, uh, we can see uh, three, uh, like if I can say, three series of Pan-African manifestations. Uh, one, I mentioned already the mobilization against the International Criminal Court uh, when Babu was there. Uh, number two, I mentioned the People's Power Movement against constitutional change. Uh, we have, it started in Senegal 2012. It started in Senegal, Burkina Faso, and in some other regions. And later on, what we see now, we see uh, the rise to power of some military leaders uh, who somehow... Uh, want to uh, 
bring some change in this in the in, in their respective countries. And then I may not speak for Guinea Conakry, uh, even though the leader over there, Dumbuya, the officer, uh, seemed to have uh, seemed to try to rehabilitate Sekuture, the first leader of Guinea Conakry, uh, who said no to the French General de Gaulle. And then for which it was uh, this country was going to be ostracized, uh, but for Mali, we've seen for the last two years how Mali shifted, and then Mali, the, the narrative, the actions, the defiance, the challenge, uh, the Pan-African narrative, the Pan-African consciousness. We've seen all those things. Uh, the Mali people talk about echoes of the people. We've seen that mobilization. And then, so this is what we are seeing. And then, uh, so the soldiers uh, who seem to have a kind of enlightenment, I can say that, uh, in the case of Mali, uh, they're trying to also add their contribution uh, to uh, the quest for the countries, you know, to be free from France or to fight against neocolonialism or uh, to fight for sovereignty. So this is what is happening right now in Africa. Yeah. And, you know, you've mentioned the people's movements on uh, in these different countries. And certainly that's true in different aspects of uh, the continent as well, Dr. Lugoke. And it, it brings a question to my mind about what do you think the uh, anti-imperialist movement and, and the pan-Africanist movement? How do you think we should be orienting? towards these different developments that we're seeing happen in different countries on the African continent, obviously within these uh, uh, countries, different situations, you know, different conditions, uh, uh, even though there may be some sort of a fundamental similarities as we've been discussing. But uh, as as movement people sort of within this frame, uh, uh, how do you think we should be sort of uh, uh, thinking and considering these developments? Yes, but the first uh, thing uh, is that it is what you are doing, uh, uh, giving the opportunity to people, you know, to give uh, the reports and the updates about what is happening in those different regions uh, of the world. And uh, that is the first thing. So we need to meet, we need to talk, we need to share information, we need to update each other. So that is the first thing that we need to do. Second, uh, we are living in a revolutionary moment. And um, people may not know, uh, but we know what is happening, uh, particularly in the case of Africa. With the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the Europeans, uh, the France, and then the West, you know, they were so desperate to have the support of, of, uh, of African countries, but it did not happen. Many of those African countries uh, did not side with them. They did not denounce Russia as they wanted to push them to, to, to do so. So, uh, so, so we, even the leaders, I'm talking about Macky Sall, who is the president of the African Union, even the leaders like Macky Sall, that many see in Africa as somebody who is a puppet of French neocolonialism. Uh, even Patrice Talon, who is not one of the presidents of Benin, who is not, a, who is, who is not even like a great reformist. All those leaders, they did not, the Europeans did not, they could not make them do what they wanted. So it means that something is happening. And then now, I'm talking about now the masses, uh, the people in the street, uh, who anytime they have an opportunity, they go after friends, they go after the West. The, the United States Secretary of State went to South Africa 
wanting to rally South Africa uh, in the in the in the the fight against Russia. But he went there. He was disappointed. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of South Africa told him that yes, you want to talk about Ukraine, but there is also the case of Palestine. There is also the case of this and this. Uh, at the United Nations General Assembly, many leaders who spoke there, they were they expressed their mind and they want the West to understand that the West needs to adjust. So, uh, to just summarize on this, uh, we need to meet more. We need to talk more. We need to create a, like a platform, uh, you know, so that we can share information, so that we can update each other. And then after we do, you know, that we can see how we can continue the struggle, the conversation, because uh, when you talk about Black Lives Matter uh, uh, in the United States, you have the same thing that is happening in, in Colombia and different other parts. Uh, when you talk about the war between Russia and uh, and Ukraine definitely is going to impact the entire world. Uh, we do not want a second Berlin conference number two, uh, because when the Europeans, are, uh, when they're dealing with some issues and they don't know how to resolve them, they always go after the, the you know the, the the most vulnerable in order to exploit these resources. And this is how they did the Berlin conference in 1884. And when I saw Olaf uh, uh, Scholz, you know, the German chancellor going to Africa, I, I told myself, maybe there is another specter of Berlin, number two, and then we need to stay awake, uh, you know, for us, you know, to fight against imperialism. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Lagoke, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there, but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about some planned protests uh, demanding the freedom of journalist Julian Assange. And we're happy to be joined for the conversation today by Mohammed Elmazi, a UK-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including the Dissenter, Jacobin, the Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Mohammed, uh, this weekend, uh, there are set to be protests in the UK and the United States calling uh, for all charges to be dropped against uh, journalist and WikiLeaks founder uh, Julian Assange, of course, as he continues uh, uh, to be incarcerated in the UK. Uh, I was reading that the National Union of Journalists, which I believe is an affiliated union with the International Federation of Journalists, is planning to have more than 3,600 people uh, form a human chain, <coughs> excuse me, to demand that Assange be freed. And I was hoping you could sort of uh, break down uh, uh, what's happening with uh, some of these protests, uh, at least in the UK, where I know that you are based, and why it's important to hold these at this particular moment for Assange. Sure. So there, uh, as I understand, at least 20 
different protest events planned for the Saturday, 8th of October around the world, including in the U.S., and, and uh, all taking their cues from this human chain event, uh, which is should be surrounding Parliament uh, using uh, the two bridges, Lambeth Bridge and Westminster Bridge, so that uh, people will be linking up. Uh, um, the Don't Extradite Assange campaign has called out uh, for the people to be joining, and the National Union of Journalists, as you noted, uh, is is involved. They support it, and they've called on their members to support it. I think they're saying that um, they estimate that uh, they need around 5,000 people to make complete the link, and uh, nearly 4,000 so far have pledged to do so. Uh, it is worth noting that, unfortunately, the RMT, the Rail and Maritime and Transport Workers Union, have called for a strike, which will happen this Saturday. I mean, th th there's been rolling strikes happening, but this Saturday was also called upon, so that will may affect the numbers. But, um, yeah, basically, if you look at the various statements being put out, uh, there's a general consensus among most media organizations – and I've, uh, as well as other civil liberties and press freedom organizations, that um, uh, the prosecution of Julian Assange is not only unjust in terms of his treatment, because he's a, an editor, journalist, and publisher who is being prosecuted for engaging in activity that editors, journalists, and publishers engage in every single day, uh, which includes publishing information which is leaked to it, you know, by people who work in government or in businesses or, or what have you. Uh, the IFJ president, I think you, re you referenced the International Federation of, of Journalists, of which the NUJ is part of, uh, uh, Dominique uh, Pradelli, if I pronounce that correctly, if incorrectly, I apologize, Dominique, uh, the, uh, said that, argued that the decision of the UK Home Secretary to allow the extradition of Julian Assange uh, was vindictive and a real blow to media freedom. All journalists must support Julian Assange, who enabled them to reveal U.S. Army war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, of course, much more than that was revealed, but that was certainly a big part of it. Um, also, uh, tools used by the CIA to take over people's electronic devices, including their phones, their computers, their televisions, and even potentially, potentially their cars, the, the more modern smart cars, or, or not necessarily smart cars as in the brand, but uh, the more modern electronic cars, ones which are have all, all manner of uh, electronic elements combined within them. So uh, that's sort of the picture. Uh, there's the, the main event in London, but there's also going to be a simultaneous event uh, uh, where people will be surrounding the DOJ in, in Washington and in the United States. And there'll be people speeches given there. I, think, I believe Chris Hedges will be going there to speak, among others. And uh, there will also be events happening in France, in Australia, in other cities in the United States. So uh, uh, people can look that up to see either on the Don't Extract Assange website or the def the Defend Assange campaign. There's also candlesforassange.com. If you go there, you can see it says uh, Global Action Free Assange Saturday, 8th of October. And there's a whole list of, of locations in, throughout the United States and throughout the world and the times that they'll be happening. So people wonder if there's something within an area that they can get to they should look that up. Yeah. And you know what you mentioned a moment ago, of course, Mohammed, is 
really at the core of the issue of the all-out assault on Julian Assange that has been taking place for years, and that is the issue of this all-out attack on press freedom, an issue that, at least in the United States, I feel like has uh, actually gotten worse in terms of censorship and suppression and, uh, you know, seeing uh, big tech companies and social media platforms, uh, and from my perspective, basically colluding uh, with the state to push forth the uh, whims of uh, the U.S. government and, and things like this. And so it, it just seems that in fighting for Assange, uh, we really are not only fighting for, you know, media freedom, but I mean, you know, fighting for the uh, ability to be able to uh, uh, carry through these sorts of things and uh, have this kind of uh, freedom of the press that in countries like the U.S. they they claim to, to champion. But, you know, I mean, you know, look at the Washington Post it's owned by Jeff Bezos. I think there's a serious question of how free it is. But I think that it's a very serious uh, sort of issue that we have to be looking at. And also why I think it was so necessary for Assange to be demonized in the way that he has been so that people don't look upon him in a, a, a sympathetic way and therefore may not necessarily see the, the deeper implications of his case. You, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and uh yeah, this is part and parcel of a sort of a, a creeping clamp down uh, that we've been seeing, not just in the United States, not just in Britain, but in countries, in multiple countries, many countries around the world. I mean, in Germany, there's a journalist now being prosecuted under a new law because of her reporting in the east of Ukraine. And some people may or may not be aware that uh, in Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was in effect, I mean, not only, but in, at least in part, also intervening in a pre-existing war that was already going on in Ukraine. There's a civil war going on between, if you like, the West and the East, where you had breakaway states, that, uh, republics that declared independence after the coup in 2014, uh, the Maidan coup, which supporters refer to as a revolution. But which overthrew the, the the elected government and replaced it with actually an unelected government organized by the United States at the time. That was Obama. And uh, there's a journalist now, a former German uh, uh, politician turned journalist, who's been reporting from the east side of Ukraine. And because of her reporting, uh, you noting that, you know, not everybody of course opposes the Russia's invasion or even people critical of Russia's invasion you know, because they've been bombed for the last eight years by the Kiev, various governments in Kiev, they have obviously a slightly different perspective of what's going on. And now she's being prosecuted. She's being criminalized in Germany. Um, you also have people being prosecuted for um, anti-BDS, sorry, for their uh, speech in favor of boycott, divestment and sanctions of the state of Israel, which is interesting because actually – uh, we've seen in the last months uh, exceptional demonization of Russia to the point that, you know, Russian cats can't be were, – were barred from an international cat competition. Russian tennis uh, uh, players are told they can't compete in, in tennis competitions. Uh, Dostoevsky <laughs> was pulled from – was it Dostoevsky or was it uh, – uh, a different writer was pulled from a, a reading list of the university in Italy. I mean, really absurd things that have happened within a matter of months. And yet Israel has been engaged in the behavior. It's been engaged in for the last, you know, uh, when was it founded in the 1940s? 
Um, and yet anybody talks about boycott, divestment and sanction in, in Germany or France. And literally, you could be uh, uh, charged with accusations, not just accusations, but criminal charges of anti-Semitism. And I mean, in France, the government has claimed that um, uh, uh, opposition to Zionism, uh, support for BDS is anti-Semitic, same in Germany. And the reason I bring this up is that there is a, a genuine climate of clampdown on speech, both against journalists and as well as against um activists and people who would, you know, uh, are argue against various sort of uh, uh, sacred cows uh, or, or ones which are held sacred by the establishment. And and uh, I think we should see the prosecution and persecution of Julian Assange within this wider context. Unfortunately, wars, when they break out, only serve to worsen uh, uh, civil liberties and, and human freedoms because the state can always legitimately and not and illegitimately both right claim that it is necessary to clamp down on civil liberties in a time of extreme crisis uh, uh, in a time of war and of course uh, you see that happening in Russia and you also see that happening in Ukraine uh, uh, as well as elsewhere so yeah yeah I definitely tend to agree that uh, there's a direct connection between the attack on press freedom and uh, kind of overall uh, suppression of political dissent that we're seeing uh, in different parts of the world and I'm also wondering Mohammed I mean where do things stand with Assange's case uh, at this point are there any sort of uh, considerable new developments it's just uh, what is happening there so on the 26th of August this year, uh, his legal team filed his uh, uh, his grounds, or they're known as the perfected grounds of appeal, before the High Court. And so, um, just so people remember that um, originally the the judge at Westminster Magistrates Court, who held who heard the totality of the arguments, found found against all of the defense grounds except for one that it was at high risk of suicide if he was subjected to certain conditions in the U.S. prison system. So she said he can't be extradited because it's too high risk of suicide. But she rejected all the other grounds that this would violate free speech, the right to a free press, that it's a politically motivated prosecution, that. Um, espionage or at least the charges as they're constructed are, are, are inherently political and the extradition act with the United States has an exemption for political offenses, so on and so forth. She ruled against all of those. But he won, so there was no real appeal for him. Then the American government appealed his victory to the high court, and they gave assurances to the high court that they'll treat him fairly. And the high court chose to accept those assurances. So then that then put the ball back into Julian's co uh, uh, court, if you like, to then file his appeal. So he's appealing primarily on the points that he had originally lost at, right, at Westminster Magistrates Court. And... Uh, on the 26th of August, the High Court uh, received submissions uh, in terms of the perfected grounds of appeal as they relate to um, the fact that he's being prosecuted and punished for his political opinions, which is an exemption under the Extradition Act. Uh, it's not allowed. Uh, Julian Assange is being prosecuted for protected speech, protected under Article 10 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is incorporated into UK law under the Human Rights Act, under Article 10 there as well, which protects uh, uh, freedom of speech and, and the right of a free press, etc. Um, 
Also, that it's politically that these are political offenses, that the U.S. government has misrepresented the core facts of the case to the British courts. I don't have more details of that because we have yet to see the perfected grounds of appeal. The lawyers are keeping them pretty close to their chest. Unfortunately, it's not like the United States where once documents are filed in court, you can easily just go and access them. It's not like that in this country. In this country, you have to go beg, borrow, plead. Uh, uh, and even then, if you get them, sometimes I've, I've received documents in advance, but under strict conditions that I can't refer to them until they've been discussed in court. So uh, I'm always chasing those up so I don't have to read them on the day. You know what I mean? They can be hundreds of pages long. And um, th I think they have all, they're also arguing that the extradition requests and its surrounding circumstances constitute an abusive process. So many of these are similar arguments they raised before the first judge. Uh, at the very beginning, who had rejected them. So yes, there's still an this. All the appeals are still ongoing, in terms of the matters that haven't been dealt with. The the high, you know, we've seen the the health matters be dealt with. Unfortunately, the high court reversed the lower court's decision there. But uh, there's also potential appeals to the European Court of Human Rights, which is I think very important for people to also recognize. Um, hopefully. We won't leave the, that court, or the jurisdiction of that court, before this case is resolved because this government, and in fact the Tory party generally, has explicitly announced its intention to abolish the Human Rights Act, incorporate – just create a British Bill of Rights, um, which uh, um, unfortunately it looks like will not be as strong – uh, in many respects, as the Human Rights Act. I mean, they've made it quite clear. They do not believe in human rights. They believe in British rights, as it were. They don't like the fact that there have been times where they have been unable to deport people because the courts have found that there's high risk of torture. They want to rewrite, they want to create a British Bill of Rights, which will allow them to deport people, even if there is risk of torture, right? And right now, the Human Rights Act doesn't allow them to do that. So, I mean, it's very disturbing. It's amazing how little coverage this gets. This is the main establishment party other than the Labour Party, right? And you think – I mean if this was Trump pushing for this, like abolishing the Bill of Rights in the United States, say, or <laughs> rewriting it to make it less powerful. I mean you'd never hear the end of it. Yeah. Even if he wasn't president of the United States anymore, you'd still be hearing about it. But this is happening in Britain, the self-proclaimed longest-running or oldest democracy in the world. Uh, and yet uh, it's just part of the permanent ongoing feature of what's going on. So people should also understand Julian's case in that wider context as well. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you making those connections. And certainly, you know, Britain about as much as, uh, of a democracy as the United States. But with all these uh, developments happening inside the case, Mohammed, how does that impact the prospects of Assange uh, uh, being extradited to the U.S.? Is that still something that is kind of a serious threat or do you think these appeals and all may, uh, you know, keep that at bay, at least for the time being? I mean, you know, uh, it, it will take some time for such a dramatic constitutional amendment, such as uh, abolishing the Human Rights Act and replacing it with the British Bill of Rights. It'll take some time for that to come to pass. Um, right now, Stella Morris says that this case could ultimately be resolved in the next six to eight months. Right. I mean, all the appeals, etc. So we don't have as much time as some people may believe that we may have. And I think that's an important thing for people to understand. But yes, there's definitely the possibility of this case not going forward. It's a politically motivated case. So if enough pressure brings an end to this politically motivated case, then that can be that means the uh, 
obviously, sorry, if enough pressure can be brought to bear on the U.S. government uh, on their hand to bring an end to the prosecution, because they're the ones filing the extradition requests, they can always withdraw it. If it becomes difficult enough for them domestically, they can always withdraw it, withdraw the request, uh, which means people should be pressuring their members of Congress. Or in the alternative, uh, the same could be happening here. If it becomes enough of a thorny issue for members of parliament here, then they can then raise it with their whoever the prime minister is and say, look, this is becoming problematic for us, especially if they're members of the dominant party, whoever happens to be in government. Right now, that's the Tories. Um, and then the prime minister could end up going to the American government and saying, OK, or the American president saying, look, we have got this special relationship. You know, we're more than happy to help you with this, but this is becoming... Uh, uh, a real sore point here, and it would be great if you could give us a way out. So um, it's uh, there's the legal component, and this will be fought in the in the the courts, and then there's also the political component. And I don't think people should discount the significance of the political component, given the political nature of this prosecution to begin with. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, October 6, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows and hear us on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave dot digital. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting and streaming live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Ajamu OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, um, has announced that they intend on slashing oil production 
by 2 million barrels a day in what appears to be a response to U.S. President uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, that uh, possibly and uh, I think maybe quite likely could very well see a considerable rise in gas prices uh, uh, worldwide. And uh, I'm just sort of generally wondering uh, uh, what you make of this development. I mean, it hardly seems random giving some of the um, broad dynamics and relationships happening in geopolitics right now, not the least of which, of course, is the ongoing uh, proxy war in Ukraine. And particularly given the relationship between uh, Saudi Arabia and Washington, uh, Jammu, I'm just wondering how you're uh, considering uh, how these uh, dynamics are playing out. Well, um, again, thank you, uh, Sean. Uh, it's a very interesting um, development. It um it, you know, it, it really reflects the real changes that have taken place in the world. There was a time in which the Saudis would never uh, attempt to uh, to deny the wishes of the U.S. to either raise production or to uh, reduce production or whatever. But because of the real shift in, in global power taking place, and, and, and you know, power is an interesting phenomenon because it's so much connected to perception also. Because the U.S. still has you know, enormous material power, no question about that. But their ability to persuade or coerce their uh, uh, vassal states even has really been reduced over the last few years. And so here we have a situation where the the uh, G7 uh, is considering uh, a uh, what some people uh, uh, characterize as an absurd effort to try to uh, manipulate the market by putting a cap on Russian petroleum uh, products, uh, oil in, in particular, uh, and gas. Uh, what particular? I mean, it it, it it's it and, and cap it below the market price. You know, it is it is you know uh, a reflection of the arrogance of of the G7 to believe that they could act like a uh, an opera like a cartel, but then turn around and criticize OPEC for cartel like uh, activities, um, and not be able to stop it. So here you have uh, the Saudis and, and the Russians uh, as the leading uh, producers deciding that they're going to reduce um, the per, per barrel output by 2 million barrels per day. Uh, that uh, is going to kick in in November, right before the midterms. Now, they weren't necessarily thinking about the midterms, but of course, the Biden administration is very much concerned about that because they know that they're going into the midterms with really very little to offer uh, the general public. Uh, and they've been, along with the Republicans, trying to shift attention away from the, the dire straits of the economy toward all of these other kinds of, of issues and struggles uh, that um, the U.S. public doesn't seem to be that concerned with. But they are, they are feeling the effects of the deepening economic crisis, uh, a crisis that has deepened as a consequence of the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, the uh, uh, sanctions imposed on Russia and, and how it backfired on the working class uh, or blew back, if you will, on the working class in the U.S. 
and in Europe, um, right on the heels of uh, an inflationary uh, pressure and, and consequence coming out of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and the working class, they are feeling it. And to have uh, the working class reminded of that even more dramatically by uh, gas prices going up right before the election, it, it will not bode well uh, for the Democrats. And so, so it's a very interesting sort of development that, uh, you know, we, we have to watch very closely. Yeah, to be sure. And I mean, I think as a consequence of this, <clears throat> we're seeing Washington now uh, uh, come to, you know, uh, none other than the government of Venezuela, the Bolivarian government of Venezuela, of course, under the uh, leadership of Nicolas Maduro uh, in discussions to uh, uh, ease some of the sanctions that it has on Venezuela, which uh, I believe, among other things, will enable Chevron to pump oil. And so here it is, uh, the United States, which, uh, you know, just back in 2019, uh, Ajamu, if you were if you uh, remember, was trying to carry out out and out regime train change and try to install this um, unremarkable, uh, uh, you know, uh, mediocre uh, sort of uh, fake of a puppet by the name of Wang Guaido, someone whose, you know, uh, stature has, uh, you know, dwindled down uh, to uh, almost nothing uh, at this moment. And uh, now here we are. And of course, at that struggle, you know, played out even right here in Washington, D.C., in terms of how uh, Guaido and his quote unquote cabinet tried to take over the uh, Venezuelan embassy here in Washington. And and in doing that, we, we organized the uh, Venezuelan Venezuelan protect, excuse me, the embassy protection collective with contingents on the inside and outside. And that, that was an interesting time. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think we have time to get too deep into it now, but I mean, they, uh, the embassy had their um, utilities shut off, electricity, water, even though they were paid up. So this is a pretty clear uh, violation that we were seeing happening. And the only reason it was allowed is because it was at the behest of U.S. imperialism. But be that as it may, and that's just going back three years to say nothing of the constant assaults on the Bolivarian Revolution in the time since its rise under the leadership of Hugo Chavez. But now, after all of that, we see uh, uh, Washington coming to uh, the door of Caracas in need. And so it's just interesting to see when you talk about these shifting dynamics in uh, global relationships and in geopolitics, they seem to be happening quickly. They seem to be uh, uh, happening uh, sharply and they're not only uh, happening in one way. And what I mean by that is this move, of course, by uh, OPEC is what I think necessitated and triggered this uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, at least a slight shift in orientation from the United States to Venezuela. And, you know, for me, Ajamu, I try not to overstate this um, notion that that we're uh, already entering a, a, a multipolar period. I don't know that that's quite happening just yet. I tend to think that the seeds of that are being planted. And as you noted, uh, uh, the, the U.S., power, U.S. hegemony 
is still very much in place. But, you know, I maintain that it is, in fact, on decline. And I think, frankly, that the world is aware of that and is acting accordingly and trying to uh, basically get their own houses in order to protect their own interests to prepare for a time when the U.S. and its dollar is no longer in control of uh, world affairs. And uh, with all of that, I have no doubt that the people in the halls of power in Washington are uh, also uh, uh, aware of that. And imperialism, I think, is in a state right now, uh, as I think we often say on the show, as kind of a cornered animal. And I think that that is why we continue to see, frankly, just the the dangerous and reckless things that uh, the U.S. is doing, certainly in terms of its role in instigating and facilitating this proxy war in Ukraine and now these further provocations in Taiwan, since the U.S. Uh, uh, knows that, you know, it, it can't, uh, uh, that there's no sort of uh, uh, other way, really, to maintain its uh, position, if you will, well, that it has to go back old school and just use, you know, straight up military might to try to beat these Ooh. things back. And if that means, you know, uh, plunging humanity to oblivion, their attitude seems to be so be it. That definitely seems to be the approach that, that, that their commitment to uh, full spectrum dominance is such that they are willing to uh, utilize every tool that they, they think they have available to them, um, including trying to manipulate um, uh, commodity prices, in this case, uh, oil. Uh, but they got, um, you know, they, they, they got undermined um, before the uh, uh, EU uh, was able to make an announcement, and the G7, that is, uh, around this uh, uh, oil cap. Uh, you know, the, the leverage they thought that they would have has now really been snatched from up under them. Um, now you know it, it's 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 also reflective too the the sort of um, this move uh, and these counter moves by uh, various uh, states. It's also reflective of the intense uh, intra-class struggles taking place among ruling elements and 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 how that gets played out in terms of of, of national interests. You know it, it it's it's uh, you know, you, you, you referenced that there was some move toward easing sanctions. Of course, the sanctions have not really been moved, have been uh, have been eased against uh, Venezuela yet. Uh, uh, but you would think that uh, if the U.S. was really concerned about, uh, you know, undermining to a certain extent uh, uh, or attempted to control of uh, the uh, ability of, of, of any uh, group of states to uh, uh, impact oil prices, uh, and they wanted more oil on the market, then they would, in fact, ease sanctions, not only against Venezuela, but against Iran. Bring the uh, uh, Iranian and Venezuela oil back into the market. Um, but, you know, of course, there's a contradiction there because they, they, they can't do that because that that contradicts the other uh, strategic objectives in, tr in terms of of undermining the ability of the Venezuelans to uh, play uh, a predominant and leading role in in uh, in Latin America uh, and to uh, um, give leverage to the Iranians uh, to continue their path of of development uh, in their part of the world. So, you know, the the U.S. 
has put itself in, in a place where its options are limited, even with the enormous power that it has. But the political options have, have uh, really uh, become less, uh, uh, the, the scope of them have really, has really been, re- been reduced over these last few years. And even with the support of, of the Democrats, who uh, I, I read something the other, I think this morning, where Bernie Sanders and the Democrats are, are upset about what uh, OPEC is doing. Uh, there's legislation that uh, they are introducing uh, to, uh, quote unquote, punish the uh, Saudis. Bernie frames, Bernie talks about reducing uh, U.S. military aid uh, to uh, and assistance to, uh, to, to the Saudis as though that the military assistance is some kind of benevolent kind of move as opposed to uh, this being a, a corrupt process of transferring um, public funds from the pockets of the, of the people to the pockets of the defense industry. So, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, and it shows the kind of, 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 of uh, lack of strategic depth and focus on the part of the uh, U.S. decision makers uh, who have been engaging in uh, decision making that's been quite counterproductive to their own interests. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And sort of in seeing how it all plays out is is really sort of, uh, I think, quite telling about uh, where the ruling class is in terms of uh, how they're orienting towards this moment. And frankly, how the rest of us, you know, the the, the struggling people of this country and of the world are sort of uh, uh, maneuvering around this as well. And, you know, another thing that uh, I was looking at in terms of specifically this this uh, uh, the ongoing proxy war in Ukraine, I actually uh, was reading a very interesting uh, article that I believe was published by Ben Norton on uh, a multipolarista. If I could just uh, pull it up here, that was talking about this op-ed that was in Newsweek that noted uh, that uh, nearly 90 percent of the world isn't going along with uh, the U.S., and Ukraine. And namely, this was uh, uh, published by two former ex-U.S. diplomats, uh, namely David H. Rundle and uh, Michael Gefeller. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And I want to read just a bit of what they wrote and sort of get your response to this, Jamu, because I think, excuse me, it gives a kind of clear picture of what the attitude of the real international community um, uh, uh, really thinks about this situation. I mean, despite the United States uh, seeming to suggest uh, more oftentimes than not that uh, basically the whole world is with them against Russia. But they wrote, quote, while the United States and its closest allies in Europe and Asia have imposed tough economic sanctions on Moscow, 87 percent of the world's population has declined to follow us, us meaning the United States. Economic sanctions have united our adversaries and shared resistance. Less predictably, the outbreak of Cold War II has also led countries that were once partners or non-aligned to become increasingly 
multi-align. They acknowledge that new multilateral institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the BRICS are growing and offer new opportunities for countries in the global south. And they also went on to talk about uh, uh, the weakening of the dollar and basically this whole global financial system. That is controlled by the United States. This issue of what we might call dollar hegemony also seems to be uh, uh, on the decline. You know what I mean? And another thing I wanted to note, because you were talking about this idea of supposedly people want to, you know, quote unquote, punish Saudi Arabia. I mean, honestly, that's pretty laughable to me because, I mean, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, when he went and met with um, the royal family in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he claimed that he was going to you make them a pariah state and hold them accountable for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, but as it turns out, what we got was a photo of him uh, a fist bumping uh, Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so despite all of that, despite basically looking the other way while this government committed murder and it's documented that that's what happened. Um, he basically looked the other way, I believe, in hopes that they could uh, cut some kind of deal at some other point. But I mean, given this development with OPEC, uh, I don't know that that really seems to be the case. And so, Ajamu, it's hard not to feel like it's kind of another embarrassing moment for the uh, uh, Biden administration, which I feel like has suffered several, particularly on the front of foreign policy, thinking also of, I mean, the complete, you know, uh, sham that was the uh, uh, so-called Summit of the Americas that, that they had earlier this year that was dwarfed by uh, the People's Summit for Democracy also being held in L.A. And it, it just feels like on a number of levels that uh, uh, the stature of the United States that it achieved through, you know, ruthless uh, uh, war, uh, destruction and bloodshed. Um, that whole apparatus seems like the uh, foundation may be starting to crumble here. And even um, people like these two former diplomats in uh, a, a publication like Newsweek, not exactly known for its criticism of uh, U.S. imperialism. You know what I mean? Not that that's precisely what this is so much as it is a kind of analysis of the broader uh, situation. But what I'm really getting at in terms of the thesis of this uh, uh, article is that this um, uh, 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 lack of support that the U.S. has on the issue, frankly, of the new Cold War uh, in general, I, I would say both in terms of uh, Russia and China, as as much energy and resources as the U.S. puts in to isolating these other countries. I mean, it, it, it's seeming increasingly so that it's the U.S. that's being isolated on the world front. The U.S. and and Western Europe, because those those numbers almost uh, align uh, exactly with the global population. You have uh, Western Europe and the U.S. making up about 10 percent of the global population. And you have 87, 90 percent of the of, of the rest of the population being opposed to their policies on Ukraine. And that's one of, one of the things that has emerged from this Ukrainian uh, debacle uh, for the for the for the West is that they have helped to establish a line of demarcation, a clear uh, understanding on the part of people in the global south that is all about the European uh, capitalists uh, and their interests. Uh, and and everybody else can be can be damned, basically. 
Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And I actually meant to take a moment to give a, a birthday shout out to my uh, co-host, comrade and friend, Jackie Lukeman, who isn't able to uh, be with us today. Certainly want to wish her a happy birthday, along with Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, a powerful and important uh, black woman organizer in the deep south. Uh, is it a coincidence that they were both born on the same day? I think not. I think not. But uh, <laughs> we do have a caller on the line here, Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free Jordan Science. Um, uh, uh, sometimes I read the, your guest tweets on Twitter. Um, how you doing, sir? Here I go. I have two comments. First, I'd like to say, okay, it is um, Bloomberg came out with an article today saying that it's be more than two bar- of, um, patrol, um, barrels of oil going to be taken off the market per day. It's going to be three million because Russia going to take off three million off the market as well. That's going to bring it to a total of five, and that's going to hurt the Western markets as well. Second comment is this. When I brought it up, why the neocons want to switch from, the neocons, neoliberals want to switch from Russia to China, the real reason is this, why they won't target China now, is because China is the economic muscle behind the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? They are the ones that's given Africa, the AU, Asian, the Southeastern countries, in Asia, uh, Central and South America loans, right? Low interest loans, or sometimes they, they have loan forgiveness debts as well. The IMF and the WTO don't do that, you know? Um, China is the one that actually spent anywhere from a $2 trillion to $3 trillion already on developing other nations, especially in the Middle East and Africa, right? So if the neocons take over in 2024, 2026, 2027, what they're going to do is they're going to run a blockade against the Russian, the Chinese economy, trying to destroy cargo ships, which is going to create a economic crisis in China, which is going to slow down the manufacturing ability, where it's going to try, they're going to try to get China to collapse on themselves. So I think, in my opinion, looking at it from a geopolitical point of view, that's the next step of what the, these Western globalists is going to do. Thank you all for taking my call. Well, thank you, Tarif. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Ajamu, your thoughts? Well, that was, that was a very, um, and yes, thank you for that, for that, and, and continue to uh, struggle and study. Uh, you know, that's exactly what we need to do. We've got to understand uh, the, the world. We have to understand global politics, understand the, the global economic system uh, in order to uh, be able to not only survive, but also to be able to advance our forces 
uh, when we have the opportunity to do so, because we know that the ultimate objective that we are involved in is, in fact, to change our conditions and to change the conditions of, of, the, of the global working class and uh, the colonized and nationally oppressed people of the world. So, yes, these machinations that uh, the caller, uh, that the brother uh, uh, references uh, are the kinds of, of, of relationships and policies, uh, decisions that are being made uh, that have an impact on all of us. This struggle between, uh, this, this struggle by the uh, European bourgeoisie to try to maintain their global hegemony um, is, is a struggle that uh, they are, are waging and but waging in a very uh, uh, counterproductive and contradictory way. Uh, they, they don't seem to be able to come up to have a strategy to, uh, to uh, uh, undermine the almost inevitable uh, uh, motion uh, of global power back to the East. And we say back to the East, meaning that, uh, you know, before the, the rise of the Europeans uh, that began in 1492 when they spilled out of uh, Europe into the Americas, um, the very real centers of, of global economic power was, was in the East. It was along the eastern coast of Africa and into uh, the, the so-called Indian Ocean and to, into China. Um, and that sort of uh, 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 positionality is, is redeveloping uh, in, this, in the contemporary world. So, you know, what, what we see with U.S. policy vis-a-vis <clears throat> -vis, uh, uh, China is uh, that you have some powerful uh, forces, primarily uh, some we refer to as neocons, uh, but you have uh, uh, powerful forces that believe that the only way they can try to undermine the uh, inevitable rise of China is through military means, uh, and they are pursuing that aggressively. They have embraced a military-first strategy. The problem, of course, is that that's, that's not working for them. It's not going to work for them with Taiwan. It has not worked for them uh, with the attempt to try to isolate and disarticulate the, uh, the Russian economy from that of, of Germany uh, in their desperate attempt to try to maintain uh, hegemony, economic hegemony in, in Europe. Um, it's not working in terms of even the vassal states, as we just talked about, uh, when it comes to um, to the the Saudis and the United uh, Arab Emirates. Um, it, it's not working any longer, and that's what makes this this period so incredibly incredibly dangerous, because the Western European bourgeoisie seems to be out of answers for itself, and we see it engaging in in desperate and reckless activity, uh, including this, this, this escalation uh, with this Ukrainian war that's really objectively already lost for, for, the, uh, for the West. Um, and the, the, the problem, of course, is that this recklessness is, is, is leading to a situation where if it spins out of control, we are involved in a nuclear confrontation. And people seem to have such a strange and cavalier attitude about what would happen if there's, in fact, a global nuclear exchange. If that happens, folks, that is the end of everyone.
people think that there's going to be some people who are going to survive and some might survive in certain parts of the global south. But the nuclear winter is going to impact everyone. So, you know, this this is a, a very dangerous moment as we see the 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 approaching of the end of white world uh, uh, supremacy, uh, because these Europeans is European capitalists and even uh, parts of the European population that that identifies with their uh, their national bourgeoisie. These folks seem to be committed to either uh, global uh, continued global dominance or they're going to blow up the entire world. Yeah. And, you know, it really is just that simple when you talk about how a nuclear war means the end of everything. And I agree. I mean, it's just it's it's frankly unsettling. There's this cavalier attitude that that people have um, about it in the United States. And I can only imagine it's a result of uh, uh, incessant imperialist propaganda to where either people don't quite understand that that is, in fact, the uh, uh, potential of a U.S. open conflict with Russia, or either they've somehow been, you know, lulled into some sense that somehow that can happen and everything just be all right. But either way, it's obviously not the case. And I think shows of the depth of work uh, that the movement has to do to really sort of uh, make this sort of thing clear. And you touched on an important point, I think, uh, Jammu, about this reckless way that the U.S. is operating in this moment, this kind of uh, what I believe what you call the contra- uh, contradictory and uh, counterproductive way of operating. And I just think that speaks to a certain kind of desperation on uh, the part of U.S. imperialism that is going to have ripples for the lot of us. But we have another caller on the line here. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, thanks for taking my call. It's uh, and. Uh Blessings to your co-host there uh, as she gets healthy, and that's, that's Jackie. And it's always a, a pleasure to hear, listen, and kind of distill the thoughts and ideas from Mr. Barack uh, uh, because, you know, you can hear the sincerity in, in, in his voice and also his dedication to uh, high moral principles. Uh, my question is that... <clears throat> If there's any beauty to, to any of this uh, or in the Ukraine is that it kind of exposes the left, and you, you've touched on, on that a bit. But and I'll name names, the likes of uh, Eric Dreitzer with uh, Counterpunch and, 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 and Paul Street, as well as uh, Amy Goodman uh, in Democ- on Democracy Now! Uh, they've been really uh, tepid, and, and I, I don't and I want to go on 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 notice because I really support Mr. Baraka and I don't, re, I don't expect the, the pot shots I see uh, that they take towards him, particularly Mr. Street and Mr. Uh, Dreitzer. But, but my point is that it this also adds clarity, as I mentioned, to the left. And I think it is a platform for us as concerned people with high moral standards to build on. So I'll stop there and uh, take uh, uh, Mr. Baraka's uh, response off off the air. But but I think that uh, more than any time, I think in history that we really need to be sincere, not only or not only to our neighbors, but specifically to ourselves. So uh, again, thank you, and and I look forward to hearing your response. Well, thank you, Mo. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Ajamu, your thoughts. 
Yeah, thank you so much for those comments. And I, I think that um, yeah, he's absolutely right. Um, we, we, this is a very critical moment. And it's unfortunate that we have so many elements of the liberal left that, uh, will, that, that are aligning themselves with the interests and the program of the Western bourgeoisie. You know, they, they uh, provide ideological cover uh, for these, these, these interventions. They try to wrap themselves in the garb of some kind of higher morality uh, to justify uh, their, uh, their uh, collaboration. Uh, they claim that those of us who take a, a, a principled anti-imperialist position where we, we identify uh, U.S. and Western uh, imperialism as the primary uh, contradiction uh, and, and, and the primary enemy of collective humanity. Uh, they will characterize that position as uh, the anti-imperialism of fools or um, uh, collaborationists with so-called uh, authoritarians. This is the new term that the bourgeoisie has been able to throw around and use as a weapon against those of us who take uh, principled revolutionary positions. Um, you know, and, and the consequence is that for uh, peoples who are still struggling for national liberation, legitimate anti-colonial national liberation and self-determination, uh, a working class that's struggling to uh, free itself from the shackles of, of capitalist exploitation uh, and, and prepared to do and preparing to do what they need to do in order to, to realize that objective. It puts all of those forces in this, this, this category of, of, of people and forces to be, uh, to be suspicious of. Because for the Eric Dracers and these others that uh, provide this kind of ideological cover, you know, they pretend that they want radical change, but they really don't. They believe that they're going to uh, be able to vote uh, some, uh, uh, some, for some minor changes, and that will address some of the issues uh, that face uh, people in the U.S. and maybe even globally. But what, it, what all of this means for all of us in the Global South who are fighting for real change is that these liberal left elements have no value for us. They're because of their collaboration with their bourgeoisie, because of their national chauvinism, um, because of their inability to purge themselves of, of, of the, the, the worldview and, and values of whiteness, the, the ideology of white supremacy, they are, they are not only don't they have any value for us, they are now, at this point, uh, they have to be identified as, as part of the enemy because they are using the little bit of influence that they do have to disarm uh, opposition. Um, and, you know, the consequence of that is, is that we recognize that unless we take power from this Western uh, colonial uh, capitalist bourgeoisie, then we're not going to survive. So this for us is a existential issue. And when you side with our enemy, then we can't do anything other than define you <clears throat> as part of that enemy. And that is what we are up against. Uh, uh, Eric and Paul and all the rest of them, you know, they were taking pot shots at me for quite some time. I never retaliated in terms of, of, of identifying them uh, in a personal way. 
I critiqued their positions. And when I did that, they knew who I was talking about and they responded. Uh, but they did not provide me the same kind of, of, of principled, uh, comradely uh, 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 behavior. And they, you know, you know, have been attacking me for quite some time. But my response now in terms of uh, openly identifying these re these reactionary forces is not a personal thing. It is 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 what is objectively needed because these these individuals represent a new kind of left neocon. Uh, they don't even understand or know that neocons, but they are. And until they are sort of exposed and delegitimize and they can, will continue to play the role they've been playing. Now, Eric Dracer himself has exposed his politics when he tweets out that he uh, has been uh, attempting to uh, expose uh, uh, Kremlin operatives in the left and in the, uh, <laughs> the anti-war movement for years. You have to ask yourself, uh, who did are you did you volunteer for that? You know who 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 uh, who allowed you or, or, or suggested you become some kind of junior G-man? You know, help, helping to to expose elements that are of uh, uh, that you perceive to be a threat uh, to uh, to to your bourgeoisie. You know, uh, the fact that that he can tweet out uh, those kinds of tweets and that be universally. Uh, condemned, it's just another example of how weak and unprincipled elements of the liberal left really is. You know, I, I, I'm a supporter of Counterpunch. Uh, I'm not going to attack that publication. You know, they very rarely would run my stuff now anymore. That's all right. Uh, they still run stuff that people need to read, you know, but it's unfortunate that there's been this grouping of these uh, reactionary leftists that have... Um, uh, kind of uh, uh, help to move the analysis that we see uh, emerge from time to time uh, in counterpunch. And, but this is sort of reflective of what we're dealing with across the board with the liberal left, not only in the U.S., but also in Western Europe. It almost says to us, we have no friends but ourselves, uh, and we have to look to the South for our allies. Yeah. And I mean, number one, uh, Ajumbo, I want people to take note of uh, what you uh, mentioned a moment ago in terms of holding fast to your principles, even when others won't. But secondly, I got to ask this question because I feel like we've been we hear this narrative ever since certainly ever since sort of the um, advent of like Russia Gate and all this garbage about like a red brown alliance. I have to know. Why does the Kremlin want operatives in the U.S. left? What do they gain from that? I have not been able to figure that out. Now, I ain't no role scholar, but I like to think I'm fairly bright and I can't wrap my head around that. I, I, I truly just don't get the logic behind that kind of uh, uh, thinking. And to me, it's sort of like the, the people who say these things and really believe them don't even really think them through just on the most basic logical level. You know what I mean? The idea is that that if you have uh, leftists who are effective, then they will be disrupting the U U.S. society. And so from the point of view of the uh, uh, Eric Dracers and even the uh, uh, Bill Fletchers, 
uh, that is problematic. Well, I don't see it being problematic uh, from from our point of view. Uh, and, and we don't need a, a Kremlin or anybody else uh, to help us to identify who our principal enemies are. We have enough sense and, and experience to understand who our friends and who our enemies are. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Ajamu Baraka is here. And uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Ricky Ryan says, uh, good, bad is a false dichotomy to engage geopolitics. Now, that's a simple concept. And you're absolutely correct. But as simple as it is, it is not something that I think is um, well understood by a lot of people in this country, even those nominally on the left. It's like there's just this uh, a deep tendency to boil everything down to this shallow, oversimplified, black and white way of uh, uh, understanding these deeply nuanced and complicated uh, uh, developments, politics and relationships. It's like uh, people want to focus on the good guy, like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, quote unquote, in both um, instances. And it's why I say, you know, people in the United States treat politics and certainly geopolitics like, like a basketball game. You know what I mean? Like it's the, you know, and right. Right. You know what I mean? And it's just uh, it's not a healthy or mature way to go about doing politics. And it's certainly not going to address uh, uh, the pressing needs that so many of us have. And before we get out of here today, Ajamu, I wanted to raise the issue of Haiti as its current prime minister, uh, Dr. Ariel Henry, has called uh, for international aid in uh, uh, basically trying to stop what he describes as a blockade of a key fuel terminal in the country that uh, I believe he says is being held off by gangs and things like this. Uh, He said in a televised address, quote, I am asking the entire international community, all countries that are friends of Haiti to stand with us fight this humanitarian crisis. We want potable water and medicine to reach sick people when cholera starts to return for factories that produce potable water to start working again. We need doctors and nurses to reach the hospitals. And of course, this is happening um, within the context of renewed uh, massive protest in the streets uh, in Haiti. Not that you would know from looking at mainstream media in this country. But not only is that going on now, it has been uh, basically for about the last four years or so, right, with very uh, little attention paid. And so I'm just wondering what you make of that, Ajamu, and of this uh, uh, appeal to aid from uh, Henri. I mean, I don't doubt for a moment that these things are desperately needed by the Haitian people. What I question is uh, Henri's desire to actually fill those needs. 
the only aid that he really wants is uh, aid to prop up his illegitimate uh, uh, regime. Uh, if he was serious about being concerned about the Haitian people and the, the demands uh, of the Haitian people, then he would step aside um, and allow for a, a new government of national reconciliation to be formed that would then move toward um, uh, a permanent uh, government as a consequence of, of new elections that will allow for the Haitian people to express, uh, express themselves, to exercise their self-determination in terms of deciding how they want to structure their government and, and what the leadership is and should look like. But no, instead, the uh, elements of the Haitian bourgeoisie uh, who uh, find themselves in trouble because the people uh, have said, we're not going to uh, continue to accept uh, your illegitimate uh, leadership. Uh, they want intervention. And the way that they are attempting to try to uh, garner intervention is to, uh, uh, to, is, to, is to appeal to a sort of a racist trope uh, regarding Haiti. These uh, black savages uh, who cannot govern themselves, who engage in uh, ir irrational violence, uh, who would block ports and stop uh, water and medicine coming to their own people, you know, they have to be stopped. We, we need the international community to intervene uh, to protect us and to protect, uh, uh, you know, uh, Western values, et cetera, et cetera. No, we, we can't allow... Uh, uh, folks to fall for that once again, because not only uh, is he making an appeal uh, to uh, to to the Western powers uh, and providing some degree of, of cover for them to intervene, because they want to intervene anyway to stabilize uh, the situation in Haiti. Uh, that appeal he's making is also resonating well again with this pathetic, uh, uh, confused liberal left that has also embraced these notions of the inability of the Haitian people to govern themselves. And they are supporting some form of, of intervention into Haiti. And so, you know, Sister Jamima uh, Pierre wrote a very powerful piece last week in the Black Agenda Report. Uh, they, in essence, calls out uh, the, the, the liberal left uh, and talks about how uh, 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 internationalism stops at the door of, of Haiti. Uh, she, she reminds people of, for example, the role of Lula uh, and the Workers' Party uh, during his first administration uh, and, and providing the military muscle, if you will, uh, for what many of us refer to as an, a UN occupation in Haiti. And there's a concern that uh, if he wins, that you know, they may uh, take up that mantle once again. So while we support uh, the Brazilian people and making a, a, a left uh, 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 change, uh, we also are African people. And, and the part of the African colonized people, the African working class, the African nation. And we got to call people out for what they what they are doing uh, when those 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 behaviors, those policies are in opposition to the interests of Africa. So we will call out Lula and anybody else. So we've got to understand what's really happening in Haiti. This is a struggle for, for independence, a struggle for self-determination. And we can't allow this confused, westernized, uh, white supremacist left uh, to allow itself to give cover 
uh, to a, another intervention into Haiti. So that's that's the short of, of, of our position, the position of the uh, BAP uh, Haiti America's team. Um, and it's a position that we are at, we are uh, pushing uh, an analysis that we want people to seriously address. Uh, we have some uh, uh, that just came out yesterday in the Black Alliance in the uh, in bar uh, to to read the uh, additional analysis on what's happening in Haiti. Educate yourself. Don't fall for the okie doke. Okay, Africans can figure out for themselves what they need to do in Haiti. Yeah, and when you talk about the the Western backers of uh, Ariel Henri Ajamu, I mean, indeed, these are the only people. Uh, these are the people that give him any kind of legitimacy. You know what I mean? I mean, quite literally, that's why he is in the uh, position that he's in. I mean, similar, that's the only way that Jovenel Moise was able to remain in power um, during that period, of course, up until he was uh, assassinated. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's just uh, when one looks at this history of Haiti and how, you know, um, every attempt at having a real uh, uh, democratic uh, process and situation take hold there in this country has just been brutally scuttled by the U.S. and the West and by France and Canada and these other uh, uh, powers as well. I mean, it just really is uh, pretty wild. I mean, even in the, the, this conception of how we often hear about Haiti as, you know, the, the, the poorest uh, country in the Western Hemisphere, but there's never any context that's put behind that. And so what we're left to believe is that is that very same racist stereotype that you just noted a moment ago is that these are just a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, uncouth, unintelligent Africans running around, uh, have no clue what they do. Certainly they can't govern themselves. They don't understand democracy. Therefore, the West, the great white father of the West has to swoop in and teach them how to to run a country when I mean, in reality, we're talking about a country that I mean, for a few centuries at this point has been being punished because they had the audacity to try to plot an independent path and they overthrew their slave masters and in doing so defeated uh, one of the most sophisticated military machines in the world at the time. And also in doing so uh, uh, triggered something that would have an impact here in the United States called the Louisiana Purchase. You know, and so if you go to school in the United States, you learn about the Louisiana Purchase, period, as a part of, you know, U.S. history class at the most basic level. But I, I had no clue about the role that uh, the Haitian Revolution played in that, uh, basically until I went to college and started studying uh, Haiti deeper for myself. And so this is all part and parcel of uh, the maintenance of imperialism, um, uh, uh, crafting these narratives. Uh, uh, shaping reality and perception, making the lie into a truth to justify the aggression against these Africans whose only crime was wanting to be free. And so, you know, for me, Ajamu, all of what we're seeing in Haiti, what we've been seeing for not only the the, the past four years, but frankly, since uh, uh, independence, I think has, uh, I think, been a real example of the viciousness 
of colonialism and imperialism on uh, uh, different levels. And uh, as such, not only are they, uh, uh, I think, deserving of our solidarity and our study, um, but in truth, it is incumbent upon us, I think, particularly here in the United States, uh, to really fight to end the imperial aggression, not only on Haiti, but indeed all over this earth. And, and the connection that we have to make in, in, in understanding uh, what, what the terms of struggle are in Haiti is to ask the question, how is it that we have these Ariel Henri um, and, and these neo-colonial leaders, uh, not only in Haiti, but throughout the African world? How is it that we have this uh, Eric Adams in, in New York and, and the Congressional Black Caucus you know, we, we have to, you know, then look at at at, at terms like uh, neo-colonialism, and 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 look at issues like class. If we're serious about uh, real uh, liberation for our folks and for everybody else, you know, this this issue of neo-colonial rule uh, in Haiti and neo-colonial domination among uh, Africans in the U.S. These are the kinds of, 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 of connections that we have to be have to has to be made. People have to understand that that you know this is this is part of class struggle also, and that if we don't uh, we can't get to the primary enemy, you know, unless we deal with these buffer elements also. So this notion of of, of class has to be brought back into into the discourse. We can't be afraid of that. We can't allow for the pork chop nationalists to to pretend that we are just one people without uh, internal contradictions, because if we, we allow that BS, then basically we would uh, find ourselves supporting politics that only perpetuate the, the colonial capitalist system. No, we, we, we reject that. We understand that, that we've got to make revolution. You know, and if we're talking about advancing the interests of the African people, of the African nation, that we have to identify the, the enemies of Africa, not only in terms of, of the big bourgeoisie, but in terms of these compador elements also and the petty bourgeoisie. We have to wage war against all of those elements and to defeat them. That is what we have to uh, do. That's our historical responsibility. And we have to be committed to that. And, and, and that compromise or retreat, no matter what kinds of pressure people put on us, that's where we got to go. Absolutely. And just to reiterate, we absolutely must make revolution right here in the United States, the beating heart of world imperialism. And we'll only be able to do that if. We are organized. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Ajambu Baraka so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.